I'm glad to be back with you. Uh, we were away last weekend. We were at a uh, couple's retreat. And uh, last Friday night, after the first night of the retreat, Kelly and I having a conversation. We do that sometimes. <laughs> and uh, um, we were just talking over that first night's meeting. And, and uh, we had a time in worship there, just like we've had this morning. And, and, and Kelly made this comment to me. She said... Uh, that worship team at Harmony has spoiled us. <laughs> she was right. I appreciate our worship team. <clears throat> and, and I know that this doesn't really follow the song we just sang very well, that it's, it's, it's all about you, Jesus, and it's not about us, and it isn't, and it isn't about... Um, Mike and Ben and, and all of the people who are on the platform. It's certainly not about me. Uh, this morning, a little bit, it's, it's, it's also been about our technicians, our technical crew in the back that have worked really hard this morning just to be able to... <clears throat> and like most of us, we never even think about the guys in the back unless something is going wrong, right? And we turn around and we look. We try not to make it real obvious. That, hey, you know, hey, come on, come on already. Uh, and we never notice when things are going well. We never notice those people. But we notice you and we appreciate you. And if you're watching online today, um, you're watching online because those people worked really hard to make it, to make it work. This is, our, this is our backup system our backup to our backup system. And if you're able to watch this morning, we're glad you're with us. Uh, and we're glad that people have worked hard to make it possible. Thank you, Pastor Tim, for a great job last Sunday. An excellent message. And uh, we appreciate we have talented, gifted people. Here we have talented and gifted people downstairs with the children. And... Uh, it's about, it's about all of us together coming into the presence of God and offering up something we hope God will find pleasing and special. And so far today, um, I haven't heard God complain. He hasn't said anything specifically to me that he hasn't said already to you, but uh, I was praying earlier uh, I just had this crazy idea as we were praying that, that there are some angels in the te technical booth right outside the throne room of, of heaven. They're watching, they're watching as all over, all over the map of the world on the Lord's Day, lights start lighting up. Here's a, here's a cluster of your people, God, praising you, and, and, uh, and it blinks on. And, and then there's a solar flare coming out of this part of Orange County between Middletown and Montgomery. And the angels are saying, hey, there, there's something hot happening there. Amen. And you and I were a part of bringing a praise to the one who makes all of us one. I hadn't started preaching yet, but you, <laughs> you can make an application from that. I'm sure you can. You're part of it, and we're glad you're here. Thursday night this last week, something extraordinary happens here on the third Thursday night of the month. Um, our food pantry ministry 
And uh, it's an off day. It's an off day in heaven's control booth, but it lights up on Thursday nights, on the third Thursday night of the month when food pantry opens here. People's lives are being touched here. And uh, if you haven't got a piece of that ministry yet, there's plenty of pieces for you to grab a hold of. So um, if, if you've been hearing about it, but you've never really seen what it is, come check it out. Talk to some of the people who are here. Some of the, some of the people, like, like our technical team, who, who never get up front. They never get up front on Sunday morning. You'll never hear them say a word out loud, and certainly not behind a microphone. But those people are part of this ministry as much as anybody else is, and in many ways, even more so. The hands and the feet of Jesus, making a difference in people's lives. Get a piece of that. Get a part of what's happening here. Become a part of what's happening here. This is the first time you've walked through the doors. We're glad you're here. By the time you've been here a second time, we want you to be able to find a a piece of this ministry to get a hold of and become part of. I heard somebody at some other church uh, making a welcome remark sort of like this, and, and he said... Uh, if you've been coming here for any length of time and you have not yet found your place of service in this ministry, you haven't really become part of us yet, but we want you to be part of us. And the more we have, the more hands we have involved, the more ministry we can have and the bigger our impact in our community. And that little, that little blinking light on that control panel in heaven will start flashing bigger and bigger and bigger, and soon it will cover the city of Middletown and the, and the village of Montgomery and Pinebush and all the other places around us where God's people are working in God's ministry and God's kingdom to proclaim God's name and the message of salvation. See, I still haven't started preaching yet. <laughs> but I'm about to. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for just a wonderful time we've been having here in worship already. Our hearts are warmed and softened as we have been led to your feet, the holy God who fights our battles, deserves our praise. Help us now as we look into your word and pick up where we've left off in Jonah's interesting story. Help us to find today what you would have for us to know. Because the only reason Jonah wrote his story, which doesn't paint him in a very favorable light, is because you told him to write it for our benefit. There's something here for us to learn. Help us to see it today. Help me to be faithful in explaining it. Uh, Where I say things, Father, carelessly that shouldn't have been said, help these people to forget it quickly. And where uh, you want your people to hear and understand, would would you blink a light in our hearts and our understanding to say, this is what I want you to know, this is what I want you to hear, this is what I want you to do, this is who I want you to be. Help us, I pray in Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. All right, Jonah the Petulant Prophet, part three. The story thus far. As you know, I'm just pulling out a couple of verses from chapter one and a couple of verses from chapter two because um, uh, I've, been away for, I've been away for two weeks and, and you've already forgotten. And if you haven't, I have. So we need to be refreshed. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose, not to go to Nineveh, but to flee to Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. You remember that from three weeks ago. The sailors on board the ship did everything they could to um, keep the ship from breaking apart, keep the ship from sinking and they prayed and they did everything and then it, and then it became obvious that Jonah was the problem. And so in verse 15 and verse 17 of chapter 1, they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. And then verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish 3 days and 3 nights. That was 3 weeks ago when we started this Series And then uh, two weeks ago, we looked at Jonah chapter 2 from inside the belly of the great fish. Jonah composed a psalm. Jonah chapter 2 is a psalm, a poem. And in it, he confesses that he has done wrong. And uh, he eventually comes around to God's way of thinking. And he says at the end of the at the end of the psalm, what I, have, what I have vowed, I will pay. What I promised, I will do. And at the end of chapter 2, the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And unfortunately, my reference to uh, Jonah being vomited uh, apparently brought down a bug in the school and church community. <laughs> and uh, I guess as, a, as an illustration... Um, a number of people have, have uh, experienced some of what the great fish was feeling. <laughs> and that's where we left off two weeks ago. So I want to pick up this morning uh, with part three. And the title of this part of the series uh, is Jonah saying to God, There, it is done. I did it. Are you happy now? This is, this is where I got this idea of the petulant prophet. I, I have three sons, and from time to time, over the course of their experience, one or the other or the other, or, or sometimes all three of them, have been the petulant son. They come by that honestly, because uh, I, in my turn, have at times been the petulant boy. Occasionally I am, from time to time, the petulant husband. <laughs> You'll have to tell Kelly, ask Kelly how she deals with that when it comes up. 
it does not usually involve a great fish, but it, it can be dramatic. The story as it has gone so far shows Jonah out of the belly of the great fish and on dry land. Probably the most surprised person of anyone who ever has heard this story is Jonah. I mean, we, you, you've heard this story more than once, more than just from me. I've heard this story many times. And maybe the first time I heard it, I said, huh, that's different. But I can't imagine the experience of the one who lived it. And then in his memory, relived it again and again and again for the rest of his life. Jonah is safely back on dry land. And then Jonah chapter 3 opens with these words. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And, and if you're at all like me, when you read Jonah chapter 3 verse 1, you can't help but think about Jonah 1 verse 1 and 2. As if Jonah 1 and 2 never happened, we're right back where... God started with Jonah. Jonah, I have a job for you to do. Go to Nineveh and proclaim against that great city the message that I'm going to tell you. And uh, that, that brings me to the first of three lessons that I can take away from Jonah chapter 3. The first lesson is God is the God of the second chance. Jonah messed up. He was defiant. He was disobedient. He was rebellious. He could have just been cast away. Probably deserved it. I've been there. Maybe one or two of you have been there. You messed up. You made a bad choice. You got bad information leading you to bad um, decisions and bad actions. And you find yourself jammed up in a tight spot. Maybe not like Jonah in the belly of a great fish, but tight nevertheless. And in that tight spot, you realize, I messed up. It's better to realize I messed up than to keep squirming and saying, so-and-so got me here. So-and-so did this and so-and-so did that. And that's true as long as the so-and-so you're talking about is the face that looks out from you in the mirror. I got myself in trouble. There might be, there might be excuses, there might be reasons why. There might be circumstances, there might be mitigating factors, but I am here because of my decisions, choices, actions. 
That's where Jonah was in chapter 2. And at the beginning of chapter 3, we see Jonah gets a second chance. Incidentally, you could also say God is the God of the third chance. Because how many of us haven't gotten it right the second time? I love that, I love that line in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. Where, where God's love is described. And one of the things that it says is that God, love, love does not keep record of wrongs. One of my favorite psalms, Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, that far has God separated my sin and its consequence from me. That far. God is the God of the second chance. Somebody here today, somebody here today is looking for a second chance. Just look up. God is the God of the second chance. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how you got here. What matters is what you do next. God is offering you a second chance. As long as there's still breath in your lungs, there's the possibility of a second chance for you. I'm grateful for that. This is what Jonah did with his second chance. Verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. He started out in obedience. According to the word of the Lord, he did what God told him to do. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breadth. I did some research about this city of Nineveh. I talked to you about it three weeks ago when we started. Nineveh is still in existence today, though it doesn't carry the same name. It's now part of the modern city of Mosul in Iraq. And it's much bigger today than it was then. And this population has grown, of course, since then. But in its day, the city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, was the largest, the greatest city on the planet. Bigger than Jerusalem, bigger than Babylon, bigger than um, whatever the city in Egypt that is modern-day Cairo was called then. It was the largest city in the world as the world was known in its day. It covered enough land that it would take a person three days to walk across the city from one side to the other. And I tried to visualize that. The biggest city in America is New York City. And Manhattan Island is one part of New York City, but probably the most prominent part of New York City. And the island of Manhattan is 13 and a half miles long, north to south, 
and two and a half miles wide. You could walk across Manhattan in an hour comfortably. You could walk from the north to the south or the south to the north, depending on where you start, in about three and a half hours. Maybe four hours if you're stopping to talk. Half a day. Half a day you could cover the entire island of Manhattan. The population of the island of Manhattan, the population of greater New York City is right now about 20 million people. Manhattan alone, now you've been to Manhattan, you know there are tall buildings there, but many of those buildings are not residential buildings. Not all of Manhattan is designed for residents, but one and a half million people live on that small island. I was just trying to get some, some, some idea of the scope of the city of Nineveh. It took three days to walk across the city at its widest point. And come, come to find out, we're not going to come to this until next week, but uh, looking at history, history estimates the size of Nineveh based on the ancient source the ancient source referred to by scholars and archaeologists to fix the size in population of Nineveh is, believe it or not, the Bible. Most historical records cite the Bible as their source for the size of the population of this great city, the greatest city of the world at its time. And Jonah chapter 4, we learned that there are at least 120,000 people living in this city. Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey across it. Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, a third of the way in. And as he went, he called out. And here's his message. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Eight words. Now, I don't know if Jonah said anything else. I don't know if Jonah spoke the language of the people who were born and grew up in Assyria. Maybe these are the only words he was able to say in their native language. I don't know. Uh, we're spec I'm speculating. You're not speculating. I'm speculating. You're listening or you're not listening. I don't know. <clears throat> but he just said eight words. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Was there more to that message than this ominous warning? Is eight words enough? Is eight words enough? How about these words? How about these words? Th these are only five words. Jesus spoke these five words to Nicodemus. You must be born again. Is that enough? Five words. You must be born again. Jonah's message, 40 days, the clock is ticking. 
You got 40 days to clean your act up. Or, or you don't have 40 days to clean your act up. You got 40 days to live. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Notice verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God. Something, something is missing there. How did they know that Jonah's message was not Jonah's message, but God's? Here comes this person that nobody knew into their town, a stranger, with an eight-word message of dire warning. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Not Jonah. Somehow, somehow they understood this message. This message was not from some alien, some outlander, some foreigner... This message to them was from God. God spoke to the people of Nineveh, and they heard him, and they believed. Now, interestingly, God used Jonah's voice. He used Jonah's feet. He used Jonah's body. But it was God delivering the message. I thought about this a lot. Why didn't God just utter a voice from heaven? He does that. He can do that. He has done that. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Give heed to him. People heard God's voice speaking from heaven when Jesus was baptized. God could have done it that way. And I, and I wondered if God had done it that way and the people of Nineveh heard and believed, what would we have learned from that? God chose Jonah to deliver this message and then to write it down for everybody else who wasn't in Nineveh to also hear and understand and believe. God doesn't have to use a preacher. God doesn't have to use a guitar player, a singer. God doesn't have to use a celebrity. God doesn't have to use a missionary. He chooses to work that way. Paul says it's foolishness, it's crazy. The preaching of the gospel is foolishness to those who don't believe. But to you and I who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen. And Jonah's eight-word message 
somehow carried with it the voice of God. And in the voice of God, the people who heard it heard truth and they heard authority. And may it be that you and I, every time we sit in front of somebody who's got their Bible in their hand and they're trying to explain something from it, may it be that when we come to church, we hear the voice of truth, casting crowns song. I should write that and give that suggestion to them. Hey, write a song about the voice of truth. I'm a little late, I know. Not only truth, but truth with authority. I don't have any authority at all. You understand that, right? I have no authority at all. Who am I to tell you what to do? Nobody. The, the authority I have, if I have any at all, comes from the Word of God, not from me. And in a minute, I'm going to suggest that there's another component that must be present. Here's the second lesson. It doesn't matter what program or what gimmick or what marketing campaign you use. If God is in it, it will prosper. If God is in it, it will prosper. And the converse of that principle is also true. If God is not in it, it doesn't matter what program, what gimmick, what marketing campaign. If God is not in it, it will not prosper. In, in, in my lifetime, which is also happens to be your lifetime, at least part of it, uh, we have seen programs and gimmicks and marketing campaigns rise up and have great success. And as soon as... As soon as we identify somebody somewhere else is doing something and getting great results, we try to reproduce it where we are. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't work. Seeker-sensitive, purpose-driven, bus ministry, door-to-door evangelism, evangelism explosion. I'm just, I'm just mentioning a few programs over the years that we've seen rise and have great success. And, and everyone, in every case, we have tried to um, imitate that and, and, and see similar results elsewhere. And sometimes we have and sometimes we haven't. The one thing in common is that if God is in it, it works. And if God isn't in it, it doesn't. And um, that, that idea popped an image into my head. Maybe this will be familiar to you. Uh, in 2009, Stephen King wrote a book. He, he's written other books too, but he, he wrote this book called Under the Dome, science fiction. I don't know if you have ever read any of Stephen King's stuff or, or if you've even heard of him, but a lot of people have. He wrote this book, and then it became a television show, and it caught my eye. This dome, this supernatural dome, descended over this town, and it could not be penetrated. Nothing under it could get out. Nothing outside of it could get in. And I'm not going to tell you any more of the unfolding of that story. It doesn't matter. The idea of it 
is what captured me. The city of Nineveh. The city of Nineveh in around 785 or 783 B.C., when Jonah showed up there, was an exceedingly wicked city that came to God's attention and decided God decided to do something about it. And so he sent his prophet with this message. And the, and the people believed it. And something extraordinary happened. And what I want to suggest to you is that for that time in history, God put a dome over that city. And everything uh, within that dome served God's purpose. And nothing, nothing was allowed to enter into that city that did not serve God's purpose. The devil called it a hedge of protection, and he blamed God for putting this thing around Job. Job was untouchable because God had surrounded him with divine protection. And I think that's what happened in Nineveh. God's Spirit settled on that town. And in whatever number of days Jonah proclaimed his eight-word message, everything else was outside of the dome. I think God has done this more than once in history. If you are a student of history, if you're a student of Christian history, history of the church, if you listen to Pastor John, any of the many times that he spoke about and read about great awakening and revival in America or in other parts of the world, something extraordinary happens because the presence of God's Spirit settles on a place or settles on a people. And God is in it. And things happen. If we could just figure out how to turn on the dome. But you see, that's God's business. But it could happen. Billy Graham, you all know about Billy Graham. Se several years ago, uh, in a previous place where I was serving God, I felt it a burden to make as our year verse um, a verse about the urgency of evangelism. The urgency of evangelism. While it is yet today... Call upon the Lord and be saved. While it is yet today, our business is the business of proclaiming the message of salvation to people who need to know it. And I have never had, I, I have never felt that I had the gift of evangelism, but I knew that I needed to do the work of an evangelist. Like Paul said to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Dennis, you're not an evangelist, but you need to do the work of an evangelist. And I said, okay, I better practice and I better study. And so uh, at that time, uh, I began to record 
um, weekly telecasts of reruns of Billy Graham Crusades. And I was doing homework. I was trying to figure out what did Billy Graham do to make him such a successful evangelist? I listened to his messages. I watched. I practiced his mannerisms. I even tried to grow my hair. No, I didn't. I just made that up. I didn't, I didn't do that. But I listened, and I tried to sense, I tried to pick up, watching what he did, how it happened that every time he got to the end of a sermon, people started rushing out of the stands at the stadiums to come forward to make a decision to trust Christ as Savior. And you know what I, you know what I learned after watching all of these? I learned Billy Graham wasn't a great preacher. I've heard many preachers that were more eloquent. Billy Graham didn't have a great delivery. He was good. I'm not saying he wasn't good, but he didn't stand out to me as the best preacher ever. And you know what my conclusion was? It was God. Of course it was God. Billy Graham was faithful. And it didn't matter what message he started to preach. He always found a way to bring it back to a simple invitation to trust Jesus Christ to be your Savior. Are you saved? Are you sure? And the Spirit of God picked people up from where they were sitting and brought them forward to pray. As if, as if the stadium where he was preaching was under a dome placed by the Holy Spirit. And the business God was doing would be done until he was done. The longest of Billy Graham's crusade was in New York City, Madison Square Garden in 1957. It lasted 16 weeks. The largest audience was in 1973 in Seoul, South Korea. In the five days from May 30th to June 3, 1973, 3.2 million people attended over the five days. On the fifth, the final day of the crusade, more than 1.1 million people showed up at an airstrip, an airport, a large outdoor venue, to hear Billy Graham proclaim the gospel on the last day of this crusade. Not everybody who attended these became believers, I'm sure of that. But I also am sure that many did. Now there are skeptics who say not everybody who goes forward at a Billy Graham crusade actually gets saved. Some of them are workers who go forward. Some of them are just going forward uh, swept up in the emotion of the moment. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what people don't do. God knows and God, his purpose is accomplished when faithful people do what they want, what God wants them to do. Am I right? This verse, uh, verse six, the word reached the king of Nineveh, who was the king at that time. History tells us, uh, depending on the exact time, we're not sure of the exact time. It could have been Adad Narari III, who reigned from 811 to 783 B.C. I'm only telling you that so that you will know that I know. 
I'm not wasting my time in my office. I'm, I'm doing, you know, a little bit of homework. <laughs> or it might have been Adad Narari III's son, Shalmaneser IV, who reigned from 783 to 773 BC. In any case, whoever was on the throne of Assyria heard about the message of this outsider who came to his city, his great, the greatest city on the world, and this guy, stranger, came into town and started proclaiming, 40 days, you got 40 days, Assyrians, you got 40 days, Ninevites, and then you're going to be overthrown. And even the king rose from his throne, re removed his robe, I'm sure he had something on underneath it, don't, don't make this weird, <laughs> covered himself with sackcloth, burlap, flour sacks, and sat in ashes. That is the classic demonstration of repentance and mourning. We see it over and over and over again in the Old Testament. How do I demonstrate outwardly that I am repentant, that I take this seriously? He, the king, issued a proclamation, verse 7, and he published it throughout the city of Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God and let everyone turn. Here's the, here's the key. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Don't just make a show of repentance. Don't just make an outward gesture of humility. Do that, but also make a change inside. Active repentance. The outward gestures punctuated by the active repentance, turning away from evil and violence. And then the king said this, maybe, who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. This king, in the mighty empire of Assyria, did not proudly order a national day of prayer and fasting and repentance. He humbled himself. Even in his statement, he did not presume to say, if we do this, God will then do this. He said, perhaps, perhaps it's not too late. So I'm going to make this gesture and I'm going to ask all of you to make this gesture. And even so far as your animals, just in case. The king is not haughty. He's not demanding anything from God. He is pleading for mercy. Verse 10. When God saw what they did. How they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. 
Did God change his mind? It's interesting. To us, it would look like that. To us, it would look like God changed his mind. He he started out to do something, and then somebody over here did something, and he said, oh, okay, I'll do this instead. But but, um, that doesn't sound very God-like to me. God who knows, who knows the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He's always known. And God knew, God knew when he sent Jonah. He knew when he sent Jonah what would happen. So did Jonah, by the way. That's the problem. We'll come to that next week. God knew what he was going to do with Nineveh. He prepared. Not, not like the Billy Cram evangelistic crusade prepares. He didn't, you know, Billy Graham's team would go into a city where they were going to do a crusade a year in advance. Start preparing, start preparing things, lining up the venues, talking to people, getting, getting churches on board, recruiting choir members, recruiting prayer warriors and personal workers and all there. A lot of, lot of preparation and promotion. Jonah didn't do any of that, but guess who did? The one who matters. So God gave the king and the people, the kings, plural, the kings and the, and the peoples of Assyria, ultimately another 150 years, 150 years from 785, 783, until finally the Assyrians forgot, as people do, about the mercy of God. And in 609 B.C., 609 B.C., the kingdom of Assyria fell to the Babylonians, those famous people that took Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, and those badans. 609, they took Assyria. Judah was next. That's not important for this series. But God, in this period of time, that he revived Actually, I guess you can't say he revived because revive implies vive. <laughs> to revive means you already had vive, which in, which in Spanish is life. Viva. To revive, no, to awaken, not reawaken, but to awaken in the people of Assyria a heart for God, and then God used the people of Assyria to fix the problem with his own people in Israel. Sometime later, 722, if you're keeping track, 722 B.C., about uh, 60 years after Jonah went to Assyria, Assyria came to visit Samaria, and they took all of the Israelites out of the place. They conquered the nation of the northern kingdom, ceased to exist after 722. Because Israel, unlike Assyria, refused to heed the warnings that God sent to the people of Israel, not with just one crazy prophet, but with many prophets, using their own scriptures. But God sent Jonah to this foreign nation to bring to them a second chance. Because not only did Jonah get a second chance, but so did the people of Assyria. And they made the most of it. 
just, just before I finish this message and give you the third lesson, I want to point out, just because you and I humble ourselves before God and just because, just because we bow before God and, and commit to him to serve him and obey him does not guarantee that our children will or that their children will or that their children will. One of the things we have to do is to teach our children to fear the living God. We have to do that. Israel didn't do that. Assyria didn't do that. And can I really go out far out on a limb, far, far, far out on a limb and say, hmm, has America done that? Here's the third lesson. God sees and responds to words and gestures of repentance, but only when they are accompanied by genuine decisions and actions of righteousness. It's not enough to just say, I'm sorry, God. If we just say, I'm sorry, God, sometimes our attitude is, I'm sorry, God, but that's just the way I am. Deal with it. And that's not repentance at all, is it? We're actually saying, God, you repent. Leave me alone. God pays attention to words and and gestures of repentance when we accompany our words and gestures with genuine decisions and actions that demonstrate trying to do what pleases God. It's not enough to just say the words. Is there something that God has been trying to say to you? Has God sent to you a Jonah? Yet 40 days, and your house will be overthrown. Is someone listening to this message today squirming in an an uncomfortable realization that there's something here? There's something here for me. There's something here 2,700 years later that speaks directly to me. Will you speak words and make gestures of repentance? And then will you follow them up with decisions and actions leading to righteousness? This is what God is looking for from us. Every one of us. Every one of us. This Nineveh crusade was a huge success. Whether it was one day, whether it was three days, whether it was 40 days. We're going to talk some more about that next Sunday. You'd think that Jonah would be very pleased with his success. I think that Jonah might have been for those few zany days that he spent in Nineveh, he very well might have been, might be the most effective missionary evangelist that has ever lived. He preached eight words. And an entire city repented. 
and the effects were felt for the next 150 years. If the Assyrian Empire was still around today, I wonder if they'd have a national holiday, Jonah Day. Would they have schools named after him? Would the Assyrian Time magazine have published this picture and called him Man of the Year? Would they have a monument to Jonah in the city square? Probably would have gotten a Nobel Prize. Jonah had a great success. But he didn't see it that way. Jonah chapter 4 verse 1. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. We'll examine the why of that statement next week. But in the meantime, I want you to consider, have you heard a warning message from God? Is God offering you a second chance? If God is in it, you can't prevent it. If God isn't in it, you can't manufacture it. But if God is in it, you can't hold it back. Why would you want to? And God sees and heeds words and gestures of repentance when they're accompanied with decisions and actions of righteousness. In a moment, the worship team is going to come and lead us in a closing hymn. And uh, as Pastor Tim did last week, I'm going to encourage you. If if God has been speaking to you through his word this morning and, and you want to make a gesture, you want to make a gesture to say, God, I am in the way. I am in the way. I have sensed that you want to do something in my life. If there's something in my life I need to let go of, if there's something in my life I need to invite you into, uh, I, I'm going to invite you to come forward and, and make a gesture to begin a decision and an action leading to righteousness. Uh, if anybody comes forward, I'll meet you and pray with you. You don't have to explain to me why you're coming. I'm not going to ask you why you're coming. And uh, if people come forward, I'm going to ask some of you to come and help. If there are too many people for me to, to meet and pray with, some of you come and help. Would you do that? And uh, as the worship team leads us in a song.